Hello, late night listeners. Uh, this is Brian, and I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon. It's a really fun thing. It's a great way to support the show, and it gets you access to all kinds of exclusive stuff. We have exclusive mini episodes. We have videos of me, for example, writing music for various things of the show. Leighton's doing all sorts of stuff, and it's just a really fun community. You also get access to our Discord if you sign up for our $5 a month tier or up. So uh, if you like the show and you like what you hear, please check us out over on Patreon. It's really a great way to to support us. Thanks so much. And enjoy Late Night with Brian Wecht. It's my Don Pardo impression. Are you drinking tea right now, Sarah? Oh, actually, yes, I am. What what was your mug say? Uh, it says world's best villain. I've had this mug for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that. You have quite the collection of mugs. I really do. <laughs> what's your favorite mug and what's your go-to tea? Wow, Ooh. hard-hitting journalism already. That's a very good question. <laughs> Honestly, the world's best villain mug might be my favorite, but my friend Emily got me this mug. I don't know if you guys have seen I Think You Should Leave. Of course. Corncob uh, yes. TV? Yeah, it says Corncob TV, and <laughs> oh, that one has great. a special place in my heart now. As for tea, I pretty much always get my tea from uh, these, a local tea shop in Vancouver called O5, and then there's another tea shop that's a very popular chain in Canada called David's Tea, and I usually, I usually get my stuff either there or at David's. There's one that I don't think they make anymore that I, I used to love called Glitter and Gold, where it has this like these really nice sugar pearls. It was this super good black tea and they, they stopped carrying it. So I have been on an eternal quest to find the closest equivalent. Aha. Uh-huh. You say Glitter and Gold and my brain is immediately shoved back to like certain NBC Hannibal fan videos. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that may have been why I bought the tea in the first place back as a teenager. I, I feel like that's a very plausible explanation. Yeah, I love how there are so many songs that, and I think you've talked about this in your videos a couple of times, just songs that are inextricably linked to Mm -hmm. certain fan vids and AMVs. Oh, totally. Regina Spector Blue. (laughs) Yes. Oh my God. Girl with One Eye, Homestuck Song Forever. (laughs) Oh yeah. I, I say this because it genuinely makes me happy. I have no idea what you guys are talking about, which is the point. I should say. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. see, Brian, sometimes we have very, very sciencey guests on or really mm-hmm. music guests and you two mm-hmm. go off and That's I right. don't know what we're talking about. Today, we have two Tumblr veterans. Yes. <laughs> and then an old man. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yeah. So no, that's that's, a sit- that's that. actually a sitcom I'm pitching <laughs> at the moment. No, that I think that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, because Sarah, I think we're like a year apart. I was uh-huh. 97. Oh yeah, 98 for me. Hell yeah. So very similar eras of Tumblr veteran this. Yes, absolutely. I'm curious what your earliest internet memories are. Like what Ooh. was the gateway? So as a kid, I went on a lot of those like games websites for kids, addicting games and stuff like that. That was the first, my first real internet exposure. But I remember the first YouTube video I ever watched because I was in grade four. Oh, and I'm excited to hear this. I had never heard of YouTube before. And so some kids at my so school that's were like, like 10 years old, right? Yeah, nine or 10. Nine or 10, yeah. So they're like, you have to go to YouTube. You have to look up Calvin and Hobbes robot chicken. It's so funny. <laughs> and so I was like, literally typed in the letter U. 
T-U-B-E, and miraculously it came up, and I, I watched Calvin and Hobbes' Robot Chicken at home so that I could come to school and tell everyone that I'd seen this crazy video that we were all talking about, and I didn't really get it, but I, I came to school, I was like, yeah, I went on YouTube, can you believe it? There's all these videos, it's crazy. It, it was very wow. exciting, it was a very different time. I think this would have been like 2000 and six, 2007, something like that. It was that kind of era of YouTube. And then I used this website a lot called My Life is Average, which was like a initially a parody of FML, which was uh, oh my god, like this little, yeah, right? It was this <laughs> website where, oh my God, I know, this website where people could post like anecdotes of bad things that happened to them today, you know. I'm a teacher and I saw somebody who was cheating at the test. So I went over to his desk and I ripped the piece of paper he had up. And then I found out that it was a note that said, good luck, love you from mom, FML. It was stuff like that. (laughs) And so a lot of the stories were made up. So they made up this website, MLIA, My Life is Average, where initially people would post just very average, very boring anecdotes about their lives. And then it sort of became this site for like, funny, fake interactions people had, mostly centering around. I went up to school one day and someone was referencing Harry Potter. I texted my boyfriend in class and said I was bored and needed him to get me out of it. So he ran into the classroom and shouted, troll in the dungeon. And so this weird community sprung up around the comment section of MLIA where it would be the same people commenting all the time. And eventually people wouldn't even talk about the post. It was just using that comment section as a spot to jump into conversation with each other. And then whenever a new post would go up, we would migrate over to that one. And that was the first internet community I remember being a part of. I was maybe nine or 10. And I was like, wow, I can't believe I can talk to people from all over the world. Uh, This is literally what I'm trying to prevent my eight-year-old from doing (laughs) currently. I would highly encourage that prevention, yes. When I was seven or eight, I was making little websites on like mattmice.com. Oh my God. if anybody is listening and also used map mice, because I never hear anybody talk about it, but it was like a very simple sort of like make a website for kids. And then I would go to starlightmakes.com and get my little MIDI tracks. Oh my God, the nostalgia. It's like a WYSIWYG website maker. It was just like basic HTML stuff and you could yeah. have your little like virtual pet that you made and a lot of like little widgets and blingies yeah. and all that Do stuff. Do you remember? You could get an enhanced version of Google where you could add little widgets onto your Google experience. So you could have like a little virtual pet on Google and there were little games you could play. Yeah. I I don't think they do that anymore. But I remember when I was in the computer lab at school, I used to use all of Google's little widgets because it was like playing on the computer instead of working. But if your teacher came by, you could say that you were just using Google. I remember there were all these little like there's like an underwater clicking game on Google at the time. (sighs) I don't remember that one, but. There's something so nostalgic about those specific little pockets of it that feels like it doesn't really exist anymore in that same way. Yeah, when it felt like it was sort of a geographical location that your Mm. family's desktop computer was a little window into instead of the shitty cling film across our entire lives um, where there is no escaping. That's a very good way of putting it, where you could go online. Yeah, you could log on and it was a special place Mm -hmm. where you talked to other weirdos. Like I was on the Nancy Drew forums when I was like eight years old <laughs> and then went on to the Webkins forums. Oh my gosh. And I ran a Siggy, a little Siggy shop where I would MS paint people's Webkins. <laughs> I was going to say, look, as the old person here, 
You think you're talking to internet weirdos, but you weren't on the internet in the early 90s, which is when the real weirdos were using oh, the yeah, internet. Oh, yeah, Usenet right? people. Mm-hmm. Usenet, random BBSs. I mean, I remember dialing into BBSs in the late 80s when I was a teenager. It's all local because that's when long distance you had to pay extra for. this. I'm, I feel so old saying this shit. <laughs> we had a set of, you know, exchanges, The not even area codes, exchanges you could dial like the first three numbers after the area code and the phone number that were considered local calls. And so I had to find BBSs that were within, you know, a set number of exchanges, which meant they were a couple towns over from me in Jersey or whatever. You know, I don't want to be uh, too nostalgic about <laughs> the internet in the late 80s, early 90s, but the technological barrier to getting on the internet was way higher back then. And I felt like you got the Uber nerds on, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, which is a different internet than what you two were contending with. Very much so. It's very interesting having been a 2010s Tumblr kid and not really having been old enough to be on LiveJournal and all of the various like sequestered fandom forums, like reading about drama, like let's say the misscribe. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Everyone's, they had their own fan sites that everything was very contained to rather yeah. than being this like almost Thunderdome platform that a lot of fandom stuff is now. I imagine that is part of the reason that fandom drama tends to look a little bit different now than it did in the past, because rather than this thing of we exist in our discrete communities, you know, I'm seeking out, I I might seek out the ships that I don't like, but it's largely about like clout arguments in internal communities or like ship wars within communities. It becomes this thing of drama between communities much more just because it is a space where algorithms are recommending you content that you might not have wanted or chosen to see Otherwise, you are on the same platform as people who have very, you know, diametrically opposed tastes from you. And so it's like wars in between fan communities. And I think that people, when they talk about like fandom drama now, I find oftentimes just describe it to young people being like ontologically worse in some way. But I think the actual (laughs) design of websites is a huge factor in that. Yeah. And I think there's also a a, a thing that's going on now where if you're not part of the in-group which could manifest as any kind of disagreement, you immediately get shunted to the sidelines. Mm -hmm. And so there's this kind of self-selection mechanism where you have people who are fans of whatever, who are more or less all on the same page because the the people who disagree are getting pushed out pretty quick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the accumulation of and manipulation of social capital within Mm -hmm. fandom communities because you have your mega fans that are very prominent in those communities who are often setting the tone and based on, you know, the social savvier ethics of some like 30 year old woman in Wisconsin, like that's Mm going to define how this thing goes for a bunch of teenagers and other adults and all sorts Mm -hmm. of people. And John Locke, uh, TJLC being a huge example of that. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I assume that's not the philosopher, John Locke. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. So in the 2010s, BBC Sherlock was airing with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman. And a lot of people really wanted Sherlock Holmes and John Watson to get together, which fair enough. But then there was this internet community that spawned from this, which claimed not only that they were going to get together, but that the creators of the show were planting elaborate clues in the background and in the imagery of the show to hint to all of the viewers, you know, years in advance that they were going to get together. The show was going to end with the two of them having a romantic 
tragic arc. And so not only was it this thing of I shipped yeah, the them. Yeah, the final I, seasons on Pornhub, et cetera. Yes. <laughs> yes, I shipped them. This is going to happen. But also we have to find the clues. I've seen ah. people compare it to QAnon a little bit. And in some ways I think that's unfair because it's just, you know. <laughs> the, because QAnon is real. Yes, because QAnon is real. But in terms of the like scouring for elaborate clues, assuming that not only is this an act of interpretation, but also that those clues were deliberately placed there by the creators and that we can make the show happen faster by finding and uncovering them, there was this very interesting mentality. And so the the TJLC community, the John Locke conspiracy community, was responsible Ah, for like a lot of harassment, a lot of drama in their ranks. And it was largely ringleaded by about three or four very big name fans who kind of led along a lot of teenagers, told them, you know, this is going to happen. Trust me, we know what we're talking about. And so it got quite messy. I just understood why it's called John Locke. So now, okay, thank you. Yes, John Okay, Yes, yes. Were people looking at other Moffat stuff to be like, actually, in Doctor Who, (laughs) he's also putting clues in there to indicate, you know, that there's like a Moffat verse or something going on. There was a little bit of that for sure. The Moffat verse of misogyny. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he has one type of female character. When I think of John Locke fan fiction, at the top of my mind is me sobbing in my bedroom at 2 a.m. over Alone on the Water. Alone on the Water. Oh, my God. Right? Grade nine. I did a school report because we could do uh, like a little analysis report on anything that we'd read in the past week. So, so I did a Sherlock fan fiction, which was, in fact, Alone on the Water. I submitted it for a grade. What grade did you get? I think it was pretty good. That's when the teacher says, oh, my God, John Locke OTP, and then everybody claps. Everyone claps. But Brian Alone on the Water was a very famous uh, John Locke fan fiction in which, tell me if I'm misremembering this, where Sherlock gets cancer and dies. I believe he gets cancer, but I believe, I could be misremembering, he gets cancer, he's been dying of it, so he fills a syringe with an air bubble so that it will kill him before he deteriorates. And so it is the, the sad last moments of Sherlock and John together. Does Watson administer the shot? I feel like he must have. I don't remember, like but it, I, right. he yes. was a dog. He must have. I he feel like that's have. what had to yeah. have happened. I remember one Sherlock fan fiction that still kind of haunts me. In season three, John mentions um, very offhandedly that his middle name is Hamish. So if they're looking for baby names, something, something. So <laughs> this, of course, spurred this oh. whole universe where they had a child named Hamish. And so it started as just this series of vignettes. It was called There Was a Boy. It was, you know, hey, here's the Hamish and John going to the concert, something like that. And then the last few chapters, chapters, he gets kidnapped by a criminal and just dies alone in a warehouse. (laughs) And you're reading this, you're like, what just happened? I was so scarred. Wait, so that the child gets kidnapped and dies alone in a warehouse because Sherlock and John are making love somewhere. You know, (laughs) then they're too busy to save him. Yeah. There was a weird preponderance of like, there is a kidnapping or people are getting shot. Like it would always mm-hmm. have to be the, the highest possible stakes yeah. of one of the members of this is going to die or both of them. And that's the only situation in which they can profess their love to each other. Yes. And reading so many of those fics, especially as somebody who was like writing fic for my friends at the time, you just see like people's neuroses telegraphed so clearly. And it's like, Uh oh, we all have trauma. That's adorable Mm -hmm. that we're putting it through this lens. This is all being written by like 12-year-olds, right? Not entirely, no. no. That's great. 
You would think, but no, there's a lot of adults who were involved in the fan fiction. Alone on the Water definitely was not written by a, a kid at the very least. Oh, yeah, yeah this one. I found it. And just because the boy had died alone didn't mean he would remain that way, forgotten in the ground. They would always be a family. That was the oh last God. line. And so these were just some cute little short stories of the family. He just dies. <laughs> oh, my God. Did you watch Supernatural? I never watched Supernatural, but everybody that I followed, like, it was all John Locke and Supernatural. And so I was like, oh, look at this. And so when Destiel became kid. <laughs> uh-huh. Do you remember Twist and Shout? No, I don't oh, think so. That was a very popular Destiel fan fiction, which I believe took place during the Vietnam War. I never actually read it. It was a very uh-huh. big one. And they were they were drafted into the war and died or it was something like that. I adore that so much. And I also love when you're that age and also reading a bunch of male-male pairings. And as a, you know, kid, I didn't know how to suss this out. But as an adult, uh, it's very funny reading a fic and being like, oh, this person's never had sex. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I hate myself for saying this, but the phenomenon of women writing fan fiction where everybody is like scissoring buttholes like why was that the thing sorry real real quick real real quick can can we just get that clean no can we just no can we just get get, just say that line again this is my line but it's just like how do you people think sex works oh i I know i think you just answered your own question it felt like fan in of gay sex written by women like which i guess is a whole other topic yeah oh yeah the things that people use as lube in fan fiction. Oh, okay. Hit me. There's so much food. Whipped cream. Blood. That's a big one. Blood, uh-huh, yeah. sure. Or thinking that like water is going to do it. Where it's yeah, like, it you're dissipates. doing it in a lake. Nope. <laughs> no, you are not. <laughs> How did you find Tumblr? Because I know for me personally, I went from Sparknotes, the website, I would, you know, go on there for homework help. They also had like community sections and articles and there was like a very thriving thing there where I would always comment and like I kind of got to know people on there and everybody always talked about Tumblr. And so I finally moved over. But I know there used to be ads for Tumblr on like MTV and that's how a lot of people found it. There were? It's weird to imagine that now. Having ads for a website on TV. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wild. I actually don't remember what initially convinced me to join Tumblr. I think it was because there was an era where a lot of fandom memes would be reposted to really big Facebook pages. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you ever uh, participated in this, Leighton, but this sort of Facebook page culture where there would be these very popular like Harry Potter fan pages where all of the mods would have their own designated nicknames and they would talk to their audiences and there would be this community around like nicknamed Facebook mods and they would often post a lot of fandom memes because I got really into like Starkid, the musical theater company. Oh my God. God, that was such an in for me too. A right? Harry Potter musical that yes. on Spark Notes that into Tumblr along with mm-hmm. like Potter Puppet Pals. Like getting, oh, I think yep. maybe I found that just out of the recommendations of like, oh, a very mm-hmm. Potter musical. Oh. And it's puppets. So Potter Puppet Pals and Very Potter Musical are different. Potter Puppet Pals is a Neil Cesariga project, the mysterious ticking noise. Very, very yeah. popular YouTube video at one point. And then uh, Very Potter Musical was this university theater company doing a comedic parody musical of Harry Potter that spurred two sequels. They've done several different shows since then. They're still going. 
going. I mean, they're not university students anymore, but they do like shared universe horror shows now. And so that was a very big like fandom entry point for a lot of people. And also that was like the first thing Darren Chris ever did. Maybe that's not the very first thing, but that was sort of the foot in the door. That was the launching point, I see. Yeah, Mm -hmm. just watching the bootleg of a very Potter musical and then downloading it so I could listen to it on my iPod. Uh Uh-huh, sequel best one. Yeah, I haven't watched it in over a decade. Oh, me neither. Yeah, I think some of the jokes in that one actually might not have aged great. Yeah, yeah, I think it could have, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but very big fandom entry point. And as well as those like Star Kid, Firefly style, like Facebook meme pages. And sometimes mm-hmm. people would like link to their tumblers in the comments. And I think that might have been what convinced me to join. Like a space where I could talk about fandom? What? This is crazy. That, that, that exists? And look at all these pictures of Nutella. <laughs> oh my, that was a big thing for a while. This stereotype, I guess, that everybody on Tumblr like loved Nutella. It was like the girl version of bacon during the same time. Right, like that right. beard beard and bacon male culture and then Nutella was the female equivalent at that time. That fucking bacon fetishism. Bacon toothpaste. uh, Was and is one of the most singularly annoying things I've seen online. When does the narwhal bacon? (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's my activation phrase. (laughs) Is it a conspiracy or is it a real thing that that bacon thing rose out of there being a huge bacon surplus and it was a big push of just like, fuck, we got to move this bacon. Really? That (laughs) seems unlikely, but I mean. I don't even feel like fact checking because I want to believe it, which is Mm -hmm. responsible of me as a podcaster. But (laughs) Well, I'm just going to internalize this. I'm Googling bacon surplus. I love your shoelaces. Thanks. I stole them from the president. Oh, my God. Were Tumblr and Reddit the only websites that had those code phrases? I think of places like The Chive, which was a thing that my male friends read, which they had like the big oh, Bill yeah. Murray fetishism. And then it's also like, here's titty pics and here's like a article trying to ape Cracked. Yeah, Cracked was big in that time. I remember reading it like religiously every single day, forming parasocial relationships with specific columnists. Yeah. Oh my God, on the bus, I would read it. That was such a weird (sighs) thing too, because when I was a kid, Cracked was only in print and it was like the sucky version of Mad Magazine, Mm -hmm. (laughs) if that's even possible. But like when Cracked became a website, I, I remember people my age were like, fucking Cracked? Are you kidding me? Like, that sucks. And then it became like, oh, actually, it's very funny and good. And there's a lot of interesting stuff happening. That was like out of nowhere Mm -hmm. for me. Cracked had always been a, you know, C-list thing. And then suddenly it was like, it's like the, wait a minute, you know, Playboy has good articles? Okay. (laughs) You know, sort of thing. Yeah. And today it's just an ad aggregate. Mm -hmm. You know, I still follow and enjoy the stuff of a lot of those columnists that I really enjoyed Mm -hmm. then. Like, I fucking love Behind the Bastards and some more news and like. Oh, I didn't realize it was the same. That makes sense. Right. At that time, my version of Cracked was the AV Club. Oh, yes. I still read it, even though it is bad now. Yeah, I'm still like, what did they think of this episode of TV? 100%. I still do that. But that like original writing staff, like the Nathan Rabin kind of era of uh, people, I think there might be one or two left, but that was my go-to at exactly the same time. During that same period of Tumblr, there was also this division of the fandom side and the hipsters. hipsters. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me about this, Which was completely (laughs) one-sided, right? Like, the hipsters didn't care about the fandom. Fandom Tumblr is leaking. Oh, my God. So there were two kind of, and I'm sure there were more 
types of people on Tumblr, but in the perception of, you know, young fandom bloggers, there were two types of people who used Tumblr. And the first would be mostly like teenage girls who used Tumblr to share kind of pretty pictures, sometimes kind of nonsensical. Here's a here's a picture of a Starbucks cup. Here's some galaxy leggings. And then there were the fandom bloggers who used Tumblr to post about, you know, Supernatural, Sherlock, Doctor Who, Welcome to Night Vale, who mm-hmm. were random and crazy. And so the idea was that the hipster bloggers, as they were so-called, were bad and some how responsible for Tumblr being a worse place, not as quirky, not as fun. Was that the first group you mentioned, the pretty yes. pictures? Okay. Yes, the hipsters, the hipsters. That's the hipsters, And so okay. people would make up, you know, fake stories of this hipster came into work today and she asked me if I used Tumblr, but then she said all the fandom people were weirdos, you know, things like that. I remember one, there's this girl at my in my school and she always used to wear big sweaters and leggings and a messy bun. And today she came to school and she was decked out in fandom merch. And the only thing she said to me was, I'm so sorry. And so <laughs> there was this, <laughs> there was this big thing of fandom bloggers trying to trick hipster bloggers into sharing fandom stuff. So they would take quotes from, you know, Super Hulock, things like that, and they would interpose them onto pretty photos as if they were just random aesthetic pictures. And then they would tag it with a bunch of hipster tags to try to trick the hipster bloggers into secretly posting fandom content. Uh-huh. It was uh, it was a very one-sided rivalry, yeah, to my best like understanding. It. You know, back in my day, it wasn't called shit posting. It was called night, night blogging, blogging, and we blamed it on well, the Australians. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're a shitty person, shit posting is just called posting. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Boom, we got him. That I've never heard the term hipster used in that way. Like that mm-hmm. is it was not big. at all the type of person I would categorized personally as oh, a hipster. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, the, the way hipster was used on Tumblr had nothing to do with, you know, mustaches, Pabst Blue Ribbon, right, any of right, that. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. It was like other teenagers who I interpreted as the popular girls at my school. Yeah, hmm. it was like a crystallization of I'm not like other girls. And that yes. was where like a lot of those were being shared unironically where it's like, here's me in a hoodie and I have a bun and, you know, everybody else sucks because they like pink. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, we're not going to analyze any of this. Let's just go yeah. with it because it means I'm quirky and special. You have a whole video about it and it's oh, great. Yeah. And oh, thank you. Yeah, I would be remiss if I did not bring up Homestuck. Oh my, Yes. It's interesting how much of Tumblr culture, even Tumblr culture now, is specifically originated from Homestuck. Even yes. I, this is this is kind of a deep cut, so um, I'm so sorry, Brian. This is going to be incomprehensible. It's, fine. it's great. No, this is why you're here. That's we, we want the deep cuts. <laughs> Layton, do you remember Caw Caw Motherfucker? Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> was that a yes? That was. You do that remember was this? A yes. Okay, that yeah. was a me being transported back in time. After the Avengers movie came out, a lot of the fan culture on Tumblr around the Avengers movie was like, oh, they're all going to live together in the tower. And so the character of Hawkeye, uh-huh. people often, for some reason, drew him and characterized him as crawling around the air vents of Stark Tower, like shooting little arrows at people, being like a weird bird going, caw, caw, motherfucker. Uh, and then the Homestuck fans got quite upset about this because as it turns out, the Avengers fans claimed that they invented caw, motherfucker but in fact it originated from the homestuck comic and so it was this like weird not rivalry exactly but this tug of war over the phrase slash meme caw caw motherfucker 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Wait, in Homestuck, was that originated by Dave Sprite? I don't, I don't remember. Even I remember. think so. Yeah. So I found Homestuck through Tumblr, as mm-hmm. you do, as yep. it's impossible to not do because it was uh-huh. like, damn, all this fan art is so cool. And then there would be update days and mm-hmm. update with an eight. Yep. And then I read all of it and I felt so cool wearing my Dave Strider What Pumpkin shirt. <laughs> At school, and nobody ever mm-hmm. recognized it. Thank God. Thank God nobody recognized it. I got the Rose shirt and a Vriska shirt, and I don't know which is worse. Vriska did nothing wrong. Vriska did nothing wrong. People just hate women. <laughs> <laughs> they hate to see a girl boss winning. Literally. God forbid a woman does anything. <laughs> Anyway, very excited to talk about Homestuck, especially with somebody who has such a storied and fun history. With no it. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so I, for the longest time, have been like, I think that you could make an, a Myers-Briggs style personality test that would accurately guess who your waifu is in Homestuck. Ooh. Like, I think you could get the personality matrices of like, yeah, you were a Gamzee fucker and you don't oh, yeah. trust Gamzee fucker. <laughs> I feel like the people who are always the most obvious about who they were really big on as teenagers are the Dave Strider people. You can always tell when someone really loved Dave Strider. Yeah, that's me. Dave Strider like single-handedly yep, yep. ruined I the way it. that I, I write. <laughs> Robert Dream Daddy <laughs> is straight up just Dave Strider. <laughs> it was Dave Rose and Carcat for me. Th- those are still my yeah. faves. I was a, you know, Rose, Briska, also Carcat person. He says fuck ass. How he could you not ass. love it? <laughs> it's very interesting that you bring up uh, how much Homestuck affects your writing style because I'm to understand there's a segment uh, at some point where we talk about current media that we're very into. And so I have a, I have a big one specifically related oh, to that thing that you bring up. Interesting. Cool. Okay. That's my telegraphing. Oh my God. Yeah. I also, speaking of, you know, the Dream Daddy thing, I, last week I was watching... Your great pro shipper versus Auntie's video. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, yes, this is so fucking good. And then <laughs> you pop up Dream Daddy on the screen and I screamed and rolled away from my desk. <laughs> <laughs> that was a crazy time on Tumblr when Dream Daddy came out. Yeah, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was such an innocuous dating sim and everybody lost their minds. Yep, I had a mental breakdown. <laughs> it was uh, it was a lot for a 19-year-old to mm-hmm. experience. And I'm glad that other people saw it and were like, that's nuts. Because when it was happening to me, I was like, they're all right. I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> and I felt that way for probably three years. But, you know, it's so fun to make stuff online. It's really cool. It's so crazy. It's a fun game, you know? Thank you. Yeah. I would go back constantly to Romance Damien over and over again. Big Damien fan. Oh, my God. Damien's is the only name I remember, which is telling enough. I thought I was going to romance the jock who uh, he wears. Craig, he has like yeah, the, yeah, Yes. Yeah. I was like, oh, he's the one. Immediately fell for Damien. I imagine that must have been so crazy to be on the like receiving end of that because even just witnessing it was insane. Yeah. I mean, for, yes. for a soulless corporate cash grab, you guys really put a lot of effort <laughs> into it. Yeah, because you know who has the deepest pockets? Gay teens. Yeah, that's right. Oh, definitely. It was a big thing to go from being a very longtime Tumblr user. And you touched on this in the Pro Shipper versus Anties video and sort of like the tweets that you talk about in that video where you think that if you say and do all of the correct things, it won't happen to you. Mm -hmm. And that you see people who fuck up and get 
dog piled online and it's like, well, I would never say that. Mm-hmm. And then it then it happens to you. And it's like, I spent months of my life trying to do hot take future sight of all these things that I thought people were going to think were problematic. So I course mm-hmm. corrected and didn't do those things. Uh-huh. And then it's whatever people yell at you for. It is so yep. much dumber than you think it possibly every could be. Every time, every time. What, Go outside. What's the dumbest thing people yelled at you for on Dream Daddy, if you want to talk about it? It took three hours for somebody to call us. Three hours after release. Wow. You date the dads. You're a dad who dates another dad. Like, there's no... Well, Sarah, children interact with each other, so... Oh, my gosh. Well, we can't have that. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to talk to you more about this off-air. I always feel like Uh such a dick when I talk about, like, the specifics of it in public because nobody cares. (laughs) But the co-creator, and I, and also I wanted to say that... Jared, can you bleep out name, please? Thank you. Just just to fuck with them. In case he you know this. what? That's hilarious. <laughs> no, because he was like, I'm so excited for you to talk to Sarah and I'm going to listen to the hell out of this episode. Oh, no. Great. <laughs> All right. So your co-creator redacted uh, also, yes. also yeah. enjoys the videos. Yeah. I told him to watch the aunties versus pro shipper thing. And I it was before I got to the dream daddy point, And I was like, I just want to warn you, you are going to get jump scared and I need you to be emotionally prepared for it. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But I think it was sort of like a very shocking thing to go from Tumblr Mm -hmm. teen and actively still being a Tumblr teen to having Mm -hmm. made the thing. And then it's like, I made this specifically for you and you took my heart out of my chest and stomped on it. (laughs) I I feel that. I get that response sometimes to my videos as well where people who are involved in fandom, and I haven't been doing as much fandom-related stuff lately just because I don't always only ever want to talk about one thing, but people sometimes see the stuff that I do and they perceive it as like, oh, this is someone who was involved in fandom and is now like laughing at the freaks, basically. And it's like, every time that I try to make something to discuss fandom, I always try to do it in like the most sympathetic way possible where we're not going to downplay any of the the bad things in those communities, but it's also not bad to care about stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's always very weird to, like you say, make something for a given community and try to reflect on it as, as positively as possible and to have that very bizarre response come back of, oh, there's a big discrepancy here between what I feel like I'm doing and what I'm perceived to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting too, and this is something that I think about a lot, is when you get a fan community, then as a creator, you have to struggle with making stuff for them versus Mm -hmm. for not them. Yes, totally. And like occasionally, you know, the way the internet is these days, if you get a dug-in fan community, that's your lifeblood that supports what you do and really Mm -hmm. goes for it. But when you think occasionally, so with my band, we do this, we're like, hey, should we try to like branch out and like try to do like a radio-friendly pop-ish hit, but our version of it? And the answer we always stumble on is no, (laughs) we shouldn't do that (laughs) because A, it would feel false to us if we if we came across it naturally. That'd be one thing. But also, maybe more importantly, it would feel false to the people that currently like what we're doing Mm -hmm. and, you know, would be like, no, this isn't Ninja Sex Party. This is this is what the fuck is this bullshit? Yeah. (laughs) So and that's something we, you know, ultimately we don't too much stock in that. We just make what we make, but it is something that we're very aware of. And I think something any online creator has to think of is playing to the fans versus playing to a wider Versus playing to yourself. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. The thing that is actually, you know, important of the thing that I want to fully create. And Mm -hmm. like I'll say, Dream Daddy is so bizarrely off brand for me. Like it is pure sweet wish fulfillment. And maybe part of my like flip on that is just because like, 
oh, you can do everything you can to make this thing that's happy and wish fulfilling and it's still not enough. So mm-hmm. instead, my general approach to everything I write now is fuck <laughs> you. Hell yeah. Suffer. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. Like, and I don't really truly mean that an- antagonistically, just I love writing pieces of shit doing horrible things. Oh, that's That's my mood. favorite. Yeah. NaNoWriMo just ended. So I've been writing my, my 200,000 word epic about two evil women becoming yes. exes and destroying each other. And so I... <laughs> I love when people are terrible. I love when things are toxic. I don't want people to be nice to each other because I do that in real life and all my friends are nice. I just want to like make people be horrible. But what that means is you're a bad person. Yes. And this is what you you don't understand. Every horrible thing. You know, hurt people, hurt people and bad people write bad people. That's true. If you don't like a piece of media, the person who made it is inherently bad. That's correct. Thank you. That's that on that. It's true. And if you can't think of a reason, you must invent one. Yes. yes. Thank you. I, that, that's one of the things that's so refreshing about your videos because you have such an even-handed approach, especially like the pro-shepherds versus antis video, because that is one of those debates that my perspective for years has been, as you say, I am an adult woman who pays taxes. All mm-hmm. of you are weird. And also this idea that you bring up, which is something I've believed for a really long time, is that like parasocial relationships going in the negative direction of this person is my enemy. Mm-hmm. That is so common, it blows my mind. Or it's like you have communities crop up Mm -hmm. in that sort of personal enemy. I have been personally wronged by this person. Thus, I now have carte blanche to destroy them. Uh Are you talking about like a a fan community that turns against a creator? And then is that what you're talking about or something else? Not all. Like, for example, you could talk about like Reddit, like snark communities that Mm -hmm. pop up around specific personalities. I feel like you don't have to be like a fan who turns sour to just have developed a very obsessive hate dim toward a person. But I also feel like oftentimes the biggest members of obsessive hate dims are former fans. For sure. Or current fans. Yes. Brian, you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about and I will not engage with it. Oh, gosh. (laughs) This is going to sound like maybe more cruel towards people who are fans of something than I mean it, because I'm a fan of a lot of things, but there's a sense of like entitlement that comes along with, I have been devoted to this thing for years. I care very personally. I've, you know, maybe I've given money to this creator. I've gone to their events. And so I have some right to control what it is, what it becomes. And then when that sense of control is challenged or threatened, a lot of times it's, you know, they are not just a creator who went in a creative direction that I don't like or who maybe stopped being as good anymore, they have personally wronged me and I still care about them. I still care about them greatly. So I will not stop talking about how much they have wronged me. Well, yeah. and it's this weird thing too about, well, look, I'm the same person I've always been. It must be mm-hmm. them who changed. Uh-huh. Yep. And it's like, yeah. no, no, we're Sometimes all your tastes changing. just change. Yes, especially yeah. if the tastes, you know, when you're a teenager, your tastes change every six months or something. Yeah. And it's okay to just say this isn't for me anymore. I used to read a lot of like young adult fiction when I was a teenager and I don't read it anymore because I'm not a teenager anymore. So at the beginning, I was tempted to be like, wow, all this YA literature used to be so good. And now it's this like terrible trope filled garbage as I was, you know, like 1920. And then I was like, wait, no, it's the same as it always has been. I'm just not a teen. And that's literally fine. I'm still glad yeah. it exists. It's just not for me anymore. You also might come back to it. My wife, yeah. who's in her mid 40s, reads a lot of YA stuff and she didn't read for a while and now she's back in it and loves it. Like right. these tastes come and go. Totally. Yeah. The way that I engaged in fandom stuff throughout my teens was so like 
wholehearted because as mm-hmm. you know, like that period of like 2010 to 2015, maybe like that was a very like you engaged in that in your whole It was whole a heart. lifestyle. It was an identity. It was who you were. You were cringe. You stayed up on <laughs> tiny chat with your internet friends that you try to hide from your parents mm-hmm. and you watch John Locke fan videos on tiny chat all night. And then mm-hmm. you write your fan fiction for each other and you draw the fan art and you hit your post limit. And then your mutuals get mad at you because you're not tagging your homestuck reblogs. Like you had to make a post special post limit blog sometimes so that you could just oh keep posting past because post limit used to be a hundred per day. Now it's 250. Yeah. Yeah. I remember all my friends hitting their post limits and then uh-huh. just desperately waiting for midnight so they could keep Come posting. back, come back, come back. <laughs> but now, like, my approach to that stuff, and I think, like, you know, being on the receiving end of that stuff is what flipped it for me, where it was uh-huh. like, I can't engage in any of this anymore. Yeah. But I'm now at a point where, like, I don't want to talk to or see anybody talk about the thing that I enjoy. And I will intentionally go back to stuff Mm -hmm. that nobody fucking cares about anymore Mm -hmm. but me so I can sit in my little bubble and enjoy my content. And there's like, I mean, it's a lot of grieving and earlier internet. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is the way that the internet itself has, has changed. But I think some of it too is just that you can't, and some people do, but a lot of times you can't engage with fandom in the same way that you did as a teenager when you're not anymore. It is much easier for the thing you like to comprise your whole identity when you are a kid and you don't like have sure. rights or like adult <laughs> relationships or you like can't a car. Go drive somewhere. Yeah. yeah you right. don't have freedom. Yeah. That becomes your freedom in a way. Yeah. And I think one of the things that like is so important there is I think me being like, oh, I am not straight through Mm -hmm. Tumblr and seeing people talk about it and having like these furtive conversations with online friends of just like, I like girls too. Uh Uh-oh. There's something about internet friendships like that where it's like, I don't even know your real name, but we know everything about each other and we talk every single day. Mm -hmm. Like there are some people where it's like, I only knew them by their URL or whatever. Or like their online nickname. Yeah, yeah. Or people I had known for years where they were like, X actually isn't my real name. It was just yeah. a nickname that stuck. And it's like, God, I could never find those people. Oh, no. Because, you know, everybody changes, but they're out there somewhere, hopefully doing yeah. great. I always think about that, like blogs that you have a close friendship with and they just stop posting one day. And it's this like, because like you said, they're not using their real names, which is also a thing that I kind of grieve a little bit online. But it's yeah. this... You could be anyone, you could be anywhere, but I still miss you. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment. And there are people who I've been friends with for over a decade because Mm -hmm. of Tumblr who, you know, I still have their numbers and I text them on holidays and I'm just like proud of them and Mm -hmm. where they've gotten with their lives. And like, you're a lawyer now and we were, we were role-playing Moriarty stuff on Omegle in 2012. (laughs) Yeah, we we were, you know, writing and reading Portal 2 fan fiction and getting oh really god. obsessed with Stephen Merchant. Yes! Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I, did you did you read Blue Sky? Of course I read Blue Sky. <laughs> I feel like that shaped a lot of people's perception of like what a human Wheatley would have been like. It's so interesting because I go back because it's still a very good game. I go back to it now and I'm like, why is Wheatley the one? Like there's a hot evil robot Plato's mill right, right there. there. <laughs> what was I thinking? Oh my God, playing Portal and Portal 2 in middle school. Like, I think oh GLaDOS God. was the first milfy. I love an evil girl boss. Like, and it's like, yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it's totally like, why was I shipping Wheelie and Shell? Gladys right? is right there. <laughs> Much like many other fics, I downloaded Blue Sky so I could read it on my Kindle at school. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Also a lot of John Locke, but you know, there's that as well. Oh, and absolutely. I forget this and I'm not going to be specific about it, but I was part of an Avengers Ask Blog ring for a really long time. Oh, Ask Blog culture was such a... I don't feel like those exist anymore, even on in Tumblr fandom no. spaces now. They were such a, a time capsule. Is that one of the ones where you use like gifts from the show or? Oh, no, I was drawing everything. Oh, drawing everything. Because there's like the cosplayers, the gift makers, the artists. There were so many Homestuck cosplayers who yes. did that. And they would put on their little Dave Strider wig and their yep. little glasses and all everybody the would shirt. reblog with the thirst and the tags. Uh-huh. What is AskBlog? I don't know what this is. Oh, so basically there was a, and I talk about this in the, the Onesler video, there was this culture on Tumblr where people would start basically roleplay blogs acting as like fictional characters from a thing that they liked. And so people mm-hmm. would send them asks. So questions on Tumblr, ah. like, uh, okay. hey, Castiel from Supernatural, what do you do when you're not killing demons? And sometimes they would cosplay as those characters and they would have a little gif of themselves emoting or they would draw a picture of the character like reacting to the question or sometimes they would put gifs and they'd be like, well, I'm glad you asked. And so a lot of times these blogs would be kind of linked up with other people role-playing as characters in the same universe and it would be like, oh, here's my Dean Winchester. So it would be like these bubbles of interrelated role-play blogs and so you would follow all of them and they would sometimes have their own little shared cannons and things like that. And there was even that fandom hierarchy within Mm -hmm. it where there were the couple of people who had the biggest blogs who totally had like the reign over that group of people. Uh Such a wild time. Were there movements to get the creators slash stars to look at and engage with this stuff or did people like to remain kind of on their own terms? I have a very brief story about this. So my dad worked on Iron Man 3 and this was at the peak of me being like super into Avengers. And so I went to the rap party for it. And at that party, I got to meet Robert Downey Jr. Like peak Mm -hmm. me being obsessed with Avengers. Oh my gosh. He was so lovely, like Uh just pitch perfect, so sweet. And the moment I got home, I got on Skype and I was like, everybody get on this call right now. And I like completely (laughs) relayed it. And then the one Uh person in the group who everyone agreed was the most annoying was like, did you tell him about us? Oh, my my God. God. No. Why would I do that? I feel like there's an age like division with regards to Mm -hmm. like telling creators about fandom or trying to bring them into it, like showing your BTS fan fiction to BTS, like that kind of, or I guess One Direction's a better example, where I feel like a lot of older fans grew up in a time where fandom was very... I mean, stigmatized sounds extreme, but it was very stigmatized. And it was, you know, you could get sued or at least get threatened to be sued for writing fan fiction. So it was this like, we don't tell anybody, we keep it in our own spaces. And then younger people who, and it's not their fault, just grew up in a time where fandom was a lot more out in the open and a lot more normalized. And you had authors openly saying that they enjoy writing fan fiction. But then there's suddenly less of a social media where you have immediate Mm -hmm. access to everybody, right? Yeah. And so it became a lot more normalized to like go to conventions and say, what do you think? think of, of my ship here, take a picture with, with me and here's my fan fiction. Will you read it? Will you read it? And I think it is very well-intentioned, but it also maybe not great. I feel like fandom should be a space for fans. That's just my opinion. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. And also expecting creators to be the arbiters of fandom drama, yes. very much like the pulling the Brian Fuller into things. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of that with like Dream Daddy stuff, or it was like, 
Uh, there's no handbook on how you're supposed to handle this. And Mm -hmm. I literally do not know how to handle this shit. Totally. And then the idea that the word of God or the word of the creator is the most important thing, not only to like arbitrate fandom drama, but also like to determine what is the true interpretation of something that they put into their work. And that the idea that fandom is not like an interpretive process where we generate meaning from what we find, but rather that meaning and authorial intent is this intrinsic thing that has to be sought out and found and pulled out of the text. That one correct interpretation is not great. I completely agree. I have fan fictions written about me and my character, which I think is great. I want people to do what makes them happy. I have no knowledge of what my canon is in character. (laughs) There's not a consistent one. It's not something we think about. And occasionally Mm -hmm. we get questions like, how do you reconcile? You know, it's like the comic Mm -hmm. book guy question, like on page 53 of what, like, The short answer is, I don't know. Like, I haven't thought about it that hard. And Mm -hmm. I love that people are thinking about it that hard. But I want essentially nothing to do with it Mm -hmm. because I feel like I would ruin it for people. Like, (laughs) I would make it really great for some people and really bad for others. Oh, those are the true ones. Those are the closest ones. (laughs) Exactly. So I just want not to be involved. And I think it's amazing that it's out there. But don't ask me about it because I'll just say, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I'll mm-hmm. throw it back. Which is what fandom yeah. should be is what do you right. think? Yes. Yeah. It's very interesting how a lot of people see the phrase death of the author and then don't actually read death of the author and misinterpret uh-huh. it. They think it's like Hatsune Miku wrote Harry Potter. <laughs> It's a murder mystery. The way that Vernon <laughs> puts it, which I'm obsessed with, is the weekend at Bernie's of the author. <laughs> we are going to prop up this corpse and decide what he means. Um, yeah. Should we introduce this show? Uh, Yes, we should. (laughs) Everybody, hello. This is Late Night with Brian Weck. My name is Brian Weck. And over here, sitting across from me, we have Leighton Gregg. That's me. Beautiful, wonderful mystery guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Sarah. My YouTube channel is Sarah Zed. I really like to talk about internet culture and social phenomenons in general. I have a sociology background, so I try to use that to do a little bit of, you know, fandom and other online culture analysis, a little bit of media criticism. But really, I just like to talk about whatever whatever is rattling in my brain that I can't get out until I do. Wonderful. That's great. That is how all good things are made. I didn't know that you have a sociology background. Yeah, I double majored in university in international relations and sociology. I really, I started with international relations and then I picked up sociology as like a minor. And then I was like, no, I love this. I have to do this forever. And so I, I kind of fell in love with it. Let me ask you something about sociology and tell me if this is accurate. I never did any sociology. The closest I got was philosophy. But it seemed like somewhere in the... 90s, early 2000s, there was a shift from, hey, let's use a lot of jargon that is purposefully obfuscating what's going on to make it more in-groupy to a thing where people are like, actually, maybe we should just be clear about what we're saying so that kind of anyone can read it, even if they're not, you know, super experts in the field. I remember trying to read a few sociology papers and being like, what the fuck is happening here. I don't understand. <laughs> and, and, and some of that's natural in any specialized academic field. You get jargon. Mm-hmm. It's inevitable. But there was so much jargon that it felt like people were being purposefully unclear. Mm. So I'm curious what, what you think about that. 
Yeah, my interpretation is never that the sort of overuse of jargon in sociology is is purposeful for the purpose of being like inscrutable to other people. I think it's just this sense of when you're in a very insular community, you develop a very hyper-specific lingo, like anybody building off of like something that Michel Foucault wrote, and suddenly everybody's talking about biopower, and you're like, okay, what's going on here? I think that some of that comes from a preponderance of like new approaches coming into the the 2000s, better just communicative tools in general, as happens in that era. And I I think there have been some pushes towards, I don't want to say accessible, but more... De-jargonified. De-jargonified language. (laughs) Yeah. And I think some of it is just that the popularity of the field really, really rose. And so when you have more people involved in anything, there's going to be more of it. There's going to be more that is appealing to a broader number of people. And then you have this this desire to communicate in a more direct way, I suppose, if if that makes any sense at all. I think it's interesting, too, that for many of the social sciences, like there was not this community of people like yourself who essentially are doing the popular and accessible version of that, Mm -hmm. you know, until YouTube and internet and all that stuff. So until whatever, mid 2000s or so, you're not getting thousands of sociologists posting popular videos like you do, which are like, hey, here's a cool thing that I was thinking about and intentionally Mm -hmm. using, you know, kind of vernacular to to make it more accessible, whether it's right, done purposefully it's or not. For other academics versus like for That's a broader right. audience That's because right. of the communicative tools of like the internet and the 2000s and I mean, social media in general, obviously. And then you get sociology, which, you know, not only communicates to those people, but also analyzes those people and, you know, does digital ethnographies, things like that, and that are yeah. just naturally going to have wider appeal and that I think are yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, totally. It was like that thing like you brought up of how the internet used to be a place in a way. And so that also means that it is analyzed as a physical place. And sometimes I like to just go back and like read old papers about the internet and like just trying to scrut the inscrutable of, of that time. And it's, it's so interesting. And I don't know. I just think that's really cool stuff. When you say old papers about the internet, what is <laughs> okay, old not, mean to you? early 2000s. So not not like old, old, but you know, when there was a marked difference in what the internet was, who was using it, how many people were using it and what its purpose was. It's like semi-recently I read Amusing Ourselves to Death for the first time, which was Neil Postman mostly talking about like TV in the 70s and reading it, I was like, oh, thank God you died before the internet. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, that book is so prescient and Mm -hmm. it feels like this thing that he didn't really know about. He talks about like, yeah, 70s, 80s, 90s TV, really 70s and 80s, right? And what was it published? 86, something like that, I think. Somewhere around there. Yeah. And it's like, oh, buddy, you don't even fucking know. You Mm -hmm. don't even know. Yeah, that book rules. Yeah, it's a very good book and I recommend it to everybody. It just, existing in 2022, having been on the internet for essentially my whole life, there's just like a terminal brain rot. We all have the same brain worms. Like, mm-hmm. I think it has morphed in the same way that when I was a very young child, not knowing that I had anxiety, that I would f- flit from, you know, object of my fear, like, oh, it's dinosaurs, it's aliens, it's getting a bad grade. Mm-hmm. Now, as an adult, like, I can read in my dreams. I don't know why that happens or why that started happening, but I dream in tweets about 
me or things that I've made. And I just mm-hmm. have nightmares that are solely like me looking at Twitter. Yeah. And I don't even use Twitter. And you very wisely deleted your Twitter. <laughs> I which did congratulations. My Twitter. Thank you. Did that happen after the go outside incident? Well, so yes. So uh, that was one of the initial catalysts. I deleted my Twitter initially, like right before I put that video out, just because I didn't want to deal with being on Twitter as that video was out. And then I did this thing of like having that kind of unhealthy relationship with Twitter throughout a lot of 2021. I would like delete it for a month. And then Twitter had a feature where if you have your account like deleted for more than a month, it's permanently gone. So I'm like, all right, I'll quietly reactivate this. But then Mm -hmm. I would slip into that. And so kind of early this year, I'm like, no, I'm actually just not going to tweet anymore unless a video's out. So I just like actually stopped tweeting. And then with Elon Musk taking over Twitter, it was more a thing of the the cybersecurity of it. Like yeah. if data leaks are happening, things like that, I don't want to have an active Twitter account just for security purposes. I mean, yeah. I'm pretty sure they disabled two-factor authentication at one point. So I'm like, all right. Yeah, well, what, what happened there is the, the service that was using it crashed for a day or something. Mm. And I don't think it was intentionally disabled. I th- okay. think it just kind of stopped working and then they got it back. Oh, I see. Still, I mean, it's it's not a very stable platform. Doesn't feel at stable the at the moment. Yeah, yes, so it's I like agree. this is not safe digitally to have up. <laughs> Did you notice a difference, like when you stopped using it? Because for me personally, I stopped maybe like August last year, year before, somewhere around there, and I noticed that when I stopped, my thought patterns were a lot better because I was so used to Mm -hmm. like waking up and scrolling the timeline and it just being like way too much. And I'm very sensitive to stuff. And so like even seeing people be mad at whoever the main character of Twitter Uh is that day, it would just like infiltrate my mind and I would be hyper anxious. And when I stopped, I was like, especially when people have done nothing wrong, it feels like a threat, you know? Yeah, yeah, 100%. it's like waiting your turn to be the main character of Twitter. Mm-hmm. For some random thing that you, was completely innocuous and yeah. someone has just pulled out of context and decided mm-hmm. to make you a villain. Yeah, Totally. Yeah, I feel that. Like, not being on there has been incredibly helpful in that sense because there is that, like, anxiety of, oh, everybody is angry at everything all of the time and there's no moderation of it. You see every, like, outrage cycle in real time, every horrible mm-hmm. thing going on. I mean, it's not, it's not just seeing people angry or seeing things that are terrible, but seeing it in a space that isn't designated for it. Yeah. You're seeing footage of war crimes in the same breath as you're seeing pictures of cats. It's like yes. there's no separation between those platforms. There's no way to mentally uh, compartmentalize what you're doing. And so absolutely not being active on Twitter anymore has been incredibly helpful in that regard. Yeah. And it, it, I mean, it comes back to the fandom kind of thing we're talking about before, where what's happening is you get all this stuff that's essentially for a specific group of people suddenly being exposed to people have no idea what the fuck it's talking about mm-hmm. and reacting to something totally devoid of context uh-huh. and being like, yeah. hey, what context about this? Collapse. Yes. And you're like, well, actually, oh, yep. there's like years of material that led up to what this means that you don't understand. Yeah. And then people steadfastly refusing to understand it. When and it's just word association. Somebody yeah. sees yeah. something and they immediately associate it with the ideas that they've been exposed to. So they're immediately sorting it into the bin of this is a good opinion or this is a bad opinion. And I'm going to assume your other opinions based on this one uh-huh. data point because, because I have an archetype that I assume you are. Uh-huh. So they'll bring in things that were never said in the conversation because it's just presumed. Somebody will tweet something like, you know, um, executive dysfunction makes it hard to do blah, blah, blah. And 
I can't believe that it's so easy to just get up and work. And so people are like, what the hell? You're saying that you know anyone can do this except for people with executive dysfunction? And then they're, it's like, no, I was talking about myself because I, I just started <laughs> I just started taking meds and I feel really productive now. And I was just talking about my own experience. But somebody else who has spent their whole life like being told, oh, you can't do this or there's something wrong with you. It's so easy to you know just get up and get work done is going to interpret it in a very different way. Yeah. Because we're being shown content that we did not seek out, we're coming into things with very different understandings of what's being discussed. Yeah. God forbid you celebrate a small personal victory. Oh, my God. Get ready, because Uh that is going to attract anger Mm -hmm. because you can't say anything nice about yourself. It's really tone deaf of you to tweet about celebrating a birthday uh, and having friends. (laughs) Yeah. When there's a war in Ukraine right now. We're literally in a pandemic. The having friends one. Yeah. Uh. Some people can't leave their homes because they're severely agoraphobic. Um, so it was really tone deaf of you to tweet that you got coffee with a friend today. <laughs> Think about yeah. how your post affected me. The main character I, of the universe. Yeah. My favorite thing in my brain is if I make any sort of like offhanded comment in my own brain is just going to that like, oh, so you think blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just escalating as quickly Uh as possible. Because now that's funny to me. A couple of years ago, that would have sent me into a panic attack for three days. Right? I think another thing, aside from like seeing horrible content and also everybody being angry, I think the casual and encouraged and celebrated cruelty is so disheartening. Like how accepted and rewarded I mean, it's very much, you know, the thing that you quote tweeted of like, haha, I'm a 30 year old woman and I'm dunking on this child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me I'm good. Like, why? <laughs> I just don't understand why. I mean, this, this is maybe Twitter in a nutshell. I don't understand why anyone would go out of their way to be mean to someone else ever. Mm-hmm. They get rewarded for it. Yeah, well, they that's get exactly it. it. That's right. It's funny. It's a good dunk. There's an incentive to do it. And even if people are not directly making the mental connection of if I say something mean to this like bad tweet with 10 likes that I just found, I'm going to get a bunch of clout for it. And that directly translates to, you know, sometimes success in my field. I think there's that that subconscious underlying thing of this is normalized. This is what we do. That's right. It is a clout game, but it's oftentimes a completely subconscious one. I, I totally agree. Yeah. I had so much respect and like was afraid and wanted to please like people who are essentially Twitter personalities who would just mm-hmm. constantly have tweets that are popping off. And yeah. now I don't trust or respect a single one of those people. If your thing mm-hmm. is that you're constantly doing hot takes, especially if those are quote tweet dunking or I must weigh in on every single thing that uh-huh. has ever happened because my opinion is the most special and important. Mm-hmm. What's going on with you? I don't trust you. But sometimes people get like pressured into it in some ways because I remember there was a totally. Twitter drama and I still don't know the full extent of it. There was a leftist personality who had drama with another leftist personality and there were some DMs being leaked. Everybody was coming down on a specific side. And if you came down on one side, the fans of one person would attack you. And so people were tweeting at me like, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? And I don't know whether it was people trying to bait me into getting involved like to cause controversy or if it was like, I respect your opinion. I want to know your take. But there is sometimes this pressure if you spend a lot of time on social media of like, there's a thing happening. There's a conversation right now. I have to say something. I have to weigh in my opinion. And I was like, nope, nope, I'm not doing that. (laughs) I try to, on my Twitter, which I have not deleted and have no plans to, to... Uh, I think ineffectively lead by example. And my position on almost everything is, well, I don't really know what's going on with this. Mm -hmm. So who am I to weigh in? Because there's probably a lot happening that we don't see. And Mm -hmm. 
I can't form an informed opinion because based on, you know, one tweet that someone yeah. sent or something like, I don't know. Or what's going on in someone's life outside the things that they tweet, you know, right. which can greatly inform a context that we might have no idea about. Yeah. yeah well, and then totally. it also becomes we need you to completely unpack and broadcast all of your trauma so we can mm -hmm. decide if you're allowed to have this opinion. Yeah. And now that you've been vulnerable, like we demanded you be, now we are going to tell you that that's not real and uh -huh. that you're right. a fake whatever. Like, uh -huh. incredible. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. There's so much misogyny and especially mm -hmm. like transphobia that gets completely brushed over by like yes. people who are quote unquote unquote woke, where it's like, uh -huh. y'all realize you're just doing like 80s anti-trans rhetoric. Like you're mm -hmm. using the exact words as you're like, yeah. you know, harassing a real trans person over a fictional character. Like, mm -hmm. neat. I see yeah. you. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And I have more ice cold Martinelli's apple juice. That's great. I didn't even know they made still apple juice. I've only ever seen the sparkling. It's very, very good. I mean, that Martinelli knows what they're doing with an apple. <laughs> Doc Martinelli. Honestly, if they did a crossover where they did like apple-themed Doc Martens, that would hit the cottage wow, core that's Yes. Right? Yes. Doc, Doc Martin, Martinelli's. Doc Martinelli's. Yes. Apple-colored boots. Yeah. Yeah. Make the laces like red with green. Um, Uh-huh. Aglets. Aglets, yes. that's yes, what they're Aglets. called. Yes. A couple of years ago, they did a collab where they printed Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights on a pair, and I didn't buy them then, and now you can only get them oh. for like $500. So what I heard, because we were talking about fruit, is you said on a pair, and I thought you meant Martinelli's oh. took a pear Me too. and printed... <laughs> The Garden of Earthly Delights on, like, a fucking Danju pear. That would that honestly would be, be very cool, artistically <laughs> speaking. When I was in, where was it? Houston, I think. Yes, Houston. I went to an art museum, and they had a Bosch, and I took a picture <gasps> of a little Bosch guy. And let me find this little Bosch guy. How do I not have a Hieronymus Bosch tattoo? I feel like I gotta do that. Okay, ready? Are we ready for a little Bosch guy? I'm ready to see the guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a very good one. Oh, I love that. Yep. And that's in hell, question mark? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'm partial to the guy with the egg body that everybody's crawling in and out of. Oh, Just yeah. That's a good one. Yep. Great stuff. Brian, would you like to introduce our segment? I would. Let me just take a drink of water here, though. So it's always important before we do these segments every week, Sarah, there's a rigorous like preparation uh, mm -hmm. regimen that I have I have to go through involves usually some stretching. You know, I have of to course. check the temperature, temperature mm -hmm. in the room. It has to be. It has to be perfect. It has to be exactly 71.5 percent mm -hmm. Fahrenheit, mm -hmm. uh, 70 degrees. I said percent. I meant degrees Fahrenheit uh, ambient temperature. Are you sitting or standing? I am sitting at the moment, mm. which I will demonstrate. <laughs> This is part of the routine as well, I presume. Yeah, yeah, Mixed I have to stretch my segments. desk. Yeah, if the desk mm -hmm. isn't suitably flexible, then the segments mm -hmm. don't really come out as well. So I have to take three sips of water. Mm -hmm. That was number three. Kind of stretch the back a little bit. No, if you take four, then I'll have it's to go ruined. pee immediately. Mm -hmm. Yes, that would interrupt the flow. The show is all about maintaining a coherent, uh, and comprehensive flow. That's right. We start at point A, straight line, mm -hmm. point B. That's the show. We put it out unedited every week without any production. 
And, uh, you know, that's, that's podcasting, right? So our first segment here is our pop culture recommendation segment. This is where you get to talk about a book, a movie, a video game, something you've been enjoying recently. The name of this segment is What's Poppin'? And the theme song All gets right. introduced in post-production and goes here. So you're not going to hear it. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? But if you heard it, what would you have thought? Oh, that was so catchy. Thank you. That's going to be on my raps next year for sure. Yeah, that's right. Most popular song. (laughs) We should start a label. We could put all the jingles on Spotify. And I would just, I would listen to this spam a lot theme over and over. Yeah. Okay. Here's our label. Our label is called Label Night with Brian Wecht. I hate it. And we release exclusively music from the podcast. Much like how when you first pitched the name for this show late in night, I hated it then and I hate this now. Great. So that means you're going to grow to love it. They hated Van Gogh in his time, too. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, We've all seen that Doctor Who episode. Yes. Oh, that that episode breaks my heart. It's so good. It's a Moffat, right? That's a Moffat. It was in Moffat's era, but I don't think he wrote it. I I had a friend recently I was talking with Doctor Who about, and he was like, so I've never watched it. Richard Curtis wrote it. Is it is it good? And I was like, is it good? It has moments <laughs> that are good. Overall, it's four children and generically pretty bad and sort of ridiculous. But did I reblog a million gift sets of Rose and David Tennant leaning oh, against a wall? You bet your fucking ass absolutely. I did. When it's good, it's so good, it's though. so good. And it's almost one episode a season in New Who, anyway. I've never seen pre-Eccleston Who. That's Mm -hmm. not true. I did watch the Paul McGann made for TV movie, but anything before that I haven't seen. I've never seen like the Tom Baker stuff, which everybody loves. So in the current iteration, there's one, maybe two episodes in a season that are like good. And then everything else is trash. And it's very seldom for me like, eh, it was all right. It's like either great or or fucking awful. And you have to wade through so much bullshit. And I like all of the actors like pretty much all the time. And the writing just goes in these, it's not even peaks and troughs. It's like troughs that occasionally blip up <laughs> to be a peak. So after, you know, spending middle school reading so much TV tropes. Uh, oh my God. Hours, hours of my life. And then being like, oh, what's Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog? Oh my and God. Then getting oh, obsessed yeah. with that and then getting obsessed with the commentary, which is also a musical. Those songs still pop into my head to this day. Yeah. But- then I was like, oh, they always talk about Doctor Who on TV tropes. Let me hit up Put Locker and watch all of the pirated Doctor oh, Who. Oh, I miss Put Locker. My first episode was the one where it's not even about the Doctor and who only shows up at the end. And it involves a guy in an electric light orchestra cover band referencing getting blowjobs from the girl who plays Moaning Myrtle in Harry Potter. But now oh, she's stuck in a concrete block. <laughs> at all. Wow. It's like widely considered one of the very worst. And that was my first one. And did it work? Did it get you hooked? Well, I watched it for several years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it was an Eccleston episode. I still watch it. I've seen every episode of The New Who, and it's fucking awful. Like, it, 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 <laughs> I, I love Jodie Whittaker. I think she's great. Mm-hmm. Those episodes she's in are generically just bad. The spider like, one. The all spider of them. one has the weirdest messaging I've ever seen. <laughs> yes. All, all well, of them it's bad weird. to shoot the spiders, but it's okay to lock them in a room so they die of starvation. <laughs> yeah. It's incoherent <laughs> is, is ultimately what it comes down to. Uh-huh. And especially like, why? 
Why is it a time travel show? Why, why, why do they even address time travel if they make zero effort to keep anything consistent? I mean, they talk about time travel a lot, but they use it as a black box where they can put anything in or pull anything from and then never worry about if something actually makes sense. Look, I, I'm pretty far from like a super hard sci-fi fan, but it's like, come on, what are we doing here? Guys? Oh, you wouldn't like, consider yourself a part of the super avenging Hulak fandom? Of course I would. Of course I would. Anyway, Layton, what's popping? I don't have a very exciting what's popping. And in fact, I think I've popped this before because all I've been consuming is Fallout and I'm putting a moratorium on me talking about Fallout on this show. So thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. What's popping for me is I got back into The Wire, um, working my way through season one. And it's just great. It's so well written and well acted. And I'm going to watch more tonight and I'm very excited about it. It's great because... I'm hitting my like number one HBO shows. And as I keep insisting that Sopranos actually is the greatest show of all time, everybody's like, no, it's The Wire. So I'm excited to be able to evaluate and weigh in. You know what would be a fun project is to take some of these like adult HBO dramas and treat them Tumblr fandom style. Right? That's, See, that's just succession. Right? That's just the yeah. succession fandom. That's right. Oh my yeah, God. Guess that's already happening with that, right? Yeah. Tom yeah. Greg. Oh, Tom Gregg. I cannot wait for Succession season four. I'm so fucking excited. I'm not caught up yet. Oh, where are you in it? I'm still very early. I'm still in the first season. I'm watching Andor right now first. Okay. Is it as good as everybody says? I finished episode three of Andor, but it's really good so far and it's picking up very well. Cool. My friends have like have all been raving about it. And so I I have this weird yes, thing. I don't know too. if either of you are like that, but if if I have friends who are get really into something and recommend it and watch it, I don't want to tell them I'm watching it until I'm already caught up and I don't know why. <laughs> oh, interesting. That and if I have friends who are really into something and talking about it, that makes me not want to watch it. Yeah, I feel that too. When I do, I have to be like, this is a secret. Nobody can know I'm watching Andor. <laughs> That's right. I'll wait a year and then be like, uh-huh. all right, fine. And then just slam through it and be like, that was pretty good. Now I get it. <laughs> they were right. They were right. Yeah, they were. They were right. <laughs> uh, Sarah, what's popping for you? Okay, Leighton, you mentioned this a little while ago about how being really into Homestuck in the 2010s can really influence your writing style. And so, I would like to recommend a book series written by a uh, former Homestuck big name fan who wrote uh, very popular fan fiction and is now a really good book series uh, called The Locked Tomb. Starting with mm. uh, Gideon the Ninth is the first book. So the tagline that it always gets marketed by is lesbian necromancers in space, which is not inaccurate, but I feel is like very nice. reductive. I don't love when stuff's marketed that way because it's like, but what's the plot? Give me more. But it genuinely is very good. It's a murder mystery in a gothic palace with lots of necromancy. Basically, this uh, princess on like a Catholic death cult planet, uh, it's a science fantasy, is sent to the worst season of Survivor ever with this girl who is very beefy and loves swords and they fucking hate each other, but they have to pretend that she is like this, this goth Catholic space princesses cavalier so that they can go together and she can become a lictor, which is basically the emperor who is also a Tumblr millennial from the 2010s who resurrected the entirety of human civilization. And it's been thousands of years since then. 
can't so that she can become one of his like necromancer soldiers. So they have to go through these trials together whilst hating each other. But what? They actually love each other and they don't know. And there's a murder mystery and it's very over the top, but it's also the prose is honestly excellent. The second book is like conceptual and weird and it's all in second person. You can really see where the homestuck uh <laughs> Where the homestuck comes oh, wow. in, but it's also second just, person, the it's person. so good. It's really, really good. Highly recommend it. And it's been, it's been rotting in my yeah, brain. Yeah, was this person really into, say, Rose and Kanaya? Because yes. that's the vibe yes, that yes, I get yes. from that. She wrote a quite popular homestuck fan fiction. Maybe you've read it. I was a big, like, Dave John reader. Mm. And also Dave Cat and John Cat. <laughs> I just like, I yeah, like my... I feel that. That was a big one. Urban Anchorite was the name of her her username. She was a big name fan of the Serendipity Gospels. That's it. It was Gamzee Terezi, Gamzee Karkat, Tavros Briska. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, I definitely wouldn't kudos. have read it because that was not my like realm of waifus. <laughs> oh, fair, fair. But it's a very good book series. Would highly recommend it if you want something that reads kind of like Homestuck but is good. <laughs> So that's wonderful. I was going to ask you, Layden, recognizing that I'm not going to understand what your answer to this means, who would my homestuck waifu be? Ooh. And Sarah, you don't know me as well, but I'm curious to hear your answer. For some reason, I want to say Aradia is my instinct. Interesting. I think maybe like Jake. I was going to say Jake. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Of course. Jake or Jade, maybe. I could see it. There's like a, a science-y connection oh, there. Oh, I see that. I think I made Brian watch like 60 seconds of Cascade. That's correct. I love showing people who know nothing about Homestuck Cascade and What's attempting to here? explain it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's also like, well, I don't necessarily know, but here's all this shit. <laughs> there is a thing that I've noticed that I do and that also apparently other people do. When reading fan fiction... I find that, you know, when they finally kiss or whatever, I will just sit there and be like, fucking, yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's like an arm motion to it. Mm -hmm, I guess we won't have mm -hmm. video for this episode, but it's just- But the arm motion's like, great mm. for all the listeners at home. It's a great arm yeah. motion. Yeah, like repeated chef's kiss and just like running around holding my phone. Yeah, exactly. It's fan fiction arms. I don't know mm -hmm. what else to call fan it. Fan fiction arms. I love it. Yeah. Brian, what's popping? Well, I've also picked an original HBO show, Layton. And because I'm an old guy, I picked an old guy HBO show. It's the Larry Sanders show. <laughs> Never heard of it. It was uh, Gary Shandling's, uh, it's a half hour comedy about the behind the scenes of a, a late night talk show where he plays like a Carson type of figure, Carson Letterman type of guy. And it's it's him Rip Torn plays his producer. This is one of the best characters on TV ever. This guy is the ultimate Hollywood asshole. And <laughs> everything he says, there's always an agenda. He sounds fake all the time. He's a complete dick. This Rip Torn character is just incredible. It's very, very funny. It takes a while to pick up, but it's very sharply observed and generally pretty subtle humor. But I really, really love it. I think it's one of the all-time great half-hour comedies. I'd seen, like, episodes here and there, you know, when it was on, but never really sat down and watched the whole thing. It's a 90s thing, so I think it ran from, like, 92 to 98 or so. And it's on HBO? 
It's on HBO. The whole series is on HBO. You can get it on HBO Max. It's great. Gary Shanley is such an odd dude, and his weirdness definitely comes across in in this show. I really, really love it. A lot of great people on it, too, that show up. Gene Garofalo is a, is a main character. Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall is on in later seasons. Bob Odenkirk shows up. There's a lot of awesome people that that kind of walk through. And because it's a late night show, they will show frequently, you know, clips from the show. They have celebrities playing themselves, you know, and it, it's a bit before the celebrity plays an exaggerated asshole version of themselves thing that then became way overdone, you know, 10 years later. So you get to see a little bit of this and it's it's always great. They just had an episode with John Ritter, RIP, on and, you know, it's nice to see his face again. It's also very 90s. He's like doing monologue jokes about fucking like Bill Clinton and <laughs> 90s stuff. Uh-huh. So, uh, and there's a lot of like skinny ties and, you know, two big jackets and things like that. It's pretty great. Sarah, speaking of skinny ties, do you ever wonder where the you come now guy? Oh my God. No, why Why did you remind? I mean, to be fair, I, I saw a gif of that guy literally yesterday on Tumblr. No. I mean, not unironically. I mean, people were making fun of it, but. Yeah. I remember seeing a post once where somebody who claimed to know the guy said that he made that as a parody, but I don't know if that's actually true. My favorite detail is that you can clearly see if you look in the background that he's standing on oh. a table. Wait, he's standing on a table? He's like in a dorm room and clearly trying to elevate to get more of a background. I didn't realize that he would have been like 19. Oh, buddy. If I I look up you come now gif, will I find it? (laughs) Put Tumblr on the end. Oh, here it is. Yep, there he is. Oh, I see Ah, the bear. Yep. (laughs) I've never seen this before. Wow. This single gif is so emblematic of an entire era. Of shit. No kidding. It's like the purple shirt of sex phenomenon. Oh my God. <laughs> then they found other actors besides Benedict Cumberbatch who were. Yep. It's like, he, here's Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> oh my God. He totally is standing on a table. The door frame is short <laughs> in the background. <laughs> that tweet that you just said is so fucking. <laughs> there are so many of those images that, like, if you know, you know, mm-hmm. and you were violently set back oh. 10 years. Mm-hmm. I could do the, the middle finger, right? So my character, the ninja I play in the band, does a lot of middle finger stuff. So Brian, if you stand on a table in your house and do that and make it a gif, I think it would do numbers. Okay, well, I'm going to do it. I think you should. Great. Mostly because I want to see it. <laughs> Great. Love it. Anyway, time for our final segment, which is called Peaches and Lemons. We will each start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a minor bummer, annoyance, or grievance. Then we will each say three peaches, which are good, happy things that we're excited about or whatever. So we will each start with a lemon and I will go first. I have a pair of AirPods that I've had for like four years now. And they're at a point where they'll hold a charge for all of 15 minutes and then they die. I need to get a new pair or at least like try a different kind of thing. Because I genuinely, despite being against them for a long time, it's very convenient. They are. But when you search for earbuds now, all of them have the little like inner ear condom, like the little nip oh, the, that yeah. you 
put in. My ear holes are too small for that. Same. I can't. It gives it's me so a headache. It's so hard to find ones that fit. I don't want to be hitting my ear cervix. Like I just yeah. want classic <laughs> iPod, classic uh-huh. iPod little buds that aren't getting in the holes. You know, I have my foldable Galaxy phone, and they have Galaxy buds. But guess what? Ear condom. Don't mm-hmm. like it. That's my lemon, I guess. It's a good lemon. Thank you. What about you, Sarah? Last November, 2021, I I was doing NaNoWriMo and then I spent about 10 days just not doing any writing. And then I managed to write about 5,000 words a day and get up to the 50,000 word NaNoWriMo goal. And I was like, yeah, this is awesome. (gasps) This year I was doing NaNoWriMo as well. And then also life just got ahead of me. I was very stressed and busy. I spent about half the month not writing at all. So then I was like, okay, I'm just going to do a crazy bunch of writing for the latter half of the month and pick it up. And I got to about 30,000 words and I'm still proud of myself, but I'm like, I could have done more. I could have done better. And so I'm a little <laughs> frustrated with myself now that it is officially December. 30K is pretty... That's pretty still, great. It's still pretty good, but it's not as good as it could have been. Yeah, when you set the standard for yourself, it's... Mm-hmm. For me, like, I can write a lot normally, but if I am, say, hypomanic, I can do an mm. insane amount. And then I compare my, like, regular depressed self to that like, kind of thing. Like, why can't I do that all the time? Yeah, it's like, but I'm capable of writing 10,000 uh-huh. words a day if I don't sleep. Yep. Like, okay, weirdo. Brian, lemon. Uh, my lemon is, I don't understand jeans. So I wear jeans pretty much exclusively as my bottom half coverings of choice. And pre-pandemic, I purchased three pairs of jeans, which I am now getting to the end of the third pair. And so I went to the mall yesterday to buy more jeans. And there are too many types of jeans, and I don't understand the styles, and I don't understand the names. And they changed them from the kind I had before, and I gave up. I went in a store for about five minutes, and I was like, I don't know what the fuck is happening here, and I left. (laughs) And I just need another pair of jeans because these are the knee holes are getting too big, and like I'm confused by contemporary jeans design and culture. So, what are the designations for men? Because for women's clothing generally, it's like boot cut, flare, low rise, uh, boyfriend, mom, paper bag. <laughs> for men's jeans, it's like slim fit, relaxed fit. But then there are all these subcategories. It's like slim fit asterisk except around the ankles or like mm-hmm. relaxed fit knees through hips slim fit knees through ankles. it's like <laughs> there are all these different mods that they tack on to the jeans and i don't understand what the fuck it is so you have to go it's impossible to buy them online because you don't know how they fit mm-hmm. also i have like big thighs and skinny jeans are just impossible for me to wear because I literally can't get my leg into them. Six thighs do save lives, Brian. They absolutely do. With all the kicking I do, I kick bad (laughs) people. And what I would like, and I recognize this has never and will never happen, is to find a style of gene that I enjoy and then have infinite copies of, or at least that lasts me through the rest of my life and not have to go to whatever fucking mass produced bullshit store to get a slightly worse version of a thing I used to wear. Solve the riddles three to figure out what kind of jeans you want. A hundred percent. Yeah. And pay $60 for them. Yeah. Absurd. Well, if you're lucky. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny that like men's jeans are named like boot cut one, boot cut two, boot cut slim. And then women's jeans are like sorcerer, bard, yeah. yes. barbarian, rogue, cleric. <laughs> or of course, with some, if you're like buying Levi jeans, it's like, oh, this is the 512. 
right? They're like browser error messages, essentially. <laughs> These are my 404 boot guys. Yes, that's, yes, exactly right. Yeah, jeans not found. And then Boom. you have the, that's the error uh, message I got jeans. yesterday. That are just Mambo number five. It's like, here's the Erica jeans. Here's the yes. Monica jeans. Well, and with all things, and, and I recognize this is worse for women's clothing than, than men's, but like waist sizes seem to mean absolutely nothing. It's like I wear typically a, a 34 waist. Like that could be something that is like scrunched on my body or I'm swimming in, depending on what style it is. And I have no idea ever. Yeah. How long are your legs? Are you going to look like you're wading through a kiddie pool because your legs are just too long for these? I mean, like Mm -hmm. if it's high waisted, is it going to be tight enough on you that it looks good or feels comfortable? Or are you going to want to vomit? And also the crotch is trying to escape inside of you. Well, and now all jeans are made, this, this shift happened, I don't know, five plus years ago or out of slightly stretchy fabric. So your clothes cling to you in ways they didn't used to. And this is the thing they make jeans out of. Anyway, it's far from a pressing problem, but I went to the mall yesterday to buy new pants and I was like, well, fuck this, I'm done. So I will have to now go back to the mall, which is a cell phone, but whatever. So that's my lemon. Sick. Those are all great lemons. Now we will each say three three peaches. Three peaches. Three peaches. All right, so here's my idea for uh, the next television show that I'm working on. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, three pitches as a segment is not bad. When we have Brent back on, who is my manager, Sarah, we'll get him to do three pitches. We'll pitch him as if he's an executive, which he just pretends to be. I can go first with peaches. Yeah, do it. Okay, peach number one is I had some dental surgery yesterday. I won't get graphic, but it involved gum stuff. Did you get more dead man gum? I did not. Actually, they took out a bunch of gum and, you know, they prescribed Tylenol with codeine and like shit for the pain. And I have zero pain from this. This happened more than 24 hours ago. And it's been a very, very easy recovery, which is not what I was expecting because they fucking, I mean, they numbed the shit out of my face and got in there. So (laughs) that's great. I am on a liquid diet for the next day or so. So I'm drinking a lot of kefir and ensure, but- Wow. Whatever. It could be a lot worse. <laughs> Second peach is uh, we've been playing kid versions of trivia games with my eight-year-old. And it is awesome because there are a lot of proper nouns she doesn't know how to say. And we have to keep guessing what she's talking about when she reads us questions. So, for example, one time she was talking about Bart Okrabuma, And we were like... Do you mean Barack Obama? Oh my God. <laughs> That's and so then, cute. Yes. What was the other one? The Mahal Gronkov. And I was like, do you mean Mikhail Gorbachev? <laughs> yes. Isn't that that uh, mob movie that Martin Scorsese? Yeah. Uh... <laughs> so there, there are proper nouns that she keeps mispronouncing in uh, amazing ways. And also like, you know, she's eight. There's a lot about the world she doesn't know. And also when she answers questions, it's pretty great. One question that my wife asked her was, what language do they speak in Mexico? And Audrey said, Mexanese. Which <laughs> it's like, hey, I think she actually did know that one. But, you know, it's a cute kid saying cute kid stuff in a funny way, which is always a recipe for comedy. So 
we've been playing a bunch of trivia now, mostly just so we can listen to her say funny stuff. <laughs> and my final page is just a bunch of stuff with friends this weekend. Friends I haven't seen in a while, and I'm looking forward to it. Holiday parties and the like. So wow. those are my peaches. All right, Sarah. Bart Okrabuma. <laughs> Bart Okrabuma. So good. My first peach is that I'm planning my wedding right now, which is a little stressful, but it's also very oh, fun. Wow. Awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. We're having a, a very fun, like, winter wedding. So I get to plan, like, cool decorations. I've already got a dress picked out. I've made invitations and saved the dates. I have our whole website customized. So I have, like, local recommendations so and hotel deals for everyone. I'm one of the people who, like, really has fun planning. So it's been... Very exciting and very happy stuff. Our last uh, Dungeons & Dragons session was a really good one, which means that it leaves us narratively in a really, really fun place. We had a, a cool combat. We have a fun, like, status quo shift that's happening right now. And so I'm I'm super, super excited for what's going to happen next. And I've just been having a lot of fun with it lately, just playing games with my friends. And then despite not meeting my, like, NaNoWriMo word goal, I am nearly done the, the writing project that I've been on and off working on for the last two years. And so it's going to be really, really nice to get to finally show people all of these ideas that have been brewing around in my head, ha have it be done so that I can get new inspiration and focus on new things. So I'm, I'm very proud about that. And I'm really, really excited to edit it and see, like, how it's going to be received. Hell yeah. Yeah. Those That's are three awesome. very good peaches. Yeah. What about you, Leighton? Mine are, everybody who listens to Spotify has gotten their Spotify unwrapped once again. Mm -hmm. Spotify has called me out for being in the top, you know, one percentile listeners to Radiohead, which mm -hmm. is just a fat dunk on me every year because that's two years in a row now. Wow. Anyway, but also when you are a podcaster who has a podcast, you get your own Spotify unwrapped. So I just wanted to give a shout out to the 842 people who have Late Night as their number one podcast. Yeah. That's nuts. Thank it's you. Awesome. Also for the 2,802 who top five and then 3,679 for the top 10, you're all great. Thank you. And also yep. people who don't listen to them, you know, the, the ones who did not make that list, you're all dead to me. <laughs> Then my second peach is my therapist was out of town last week and I have an appointment in one hour that I am going to roller skate into that Zoom call and go off. And then my third peach is that, Sarah, I have been looking forward to talking to you all week oh, and this has been you. such a joy. Yes. So I'm, I'm just so happy you're here and oh, you've been so, so generous glad. with your time. I've had a really wonderful time talking to both of you as well. Yeah, it's thank you nice. so much for being here. Yeah, Layton, she introduced me to your channel and then I watched a bunch of your stuff, which is all fantastic. And we've been looking forward to this for for a while. So I'm really, really excited you could you could be on the show. Oh, well, thank you so uh, much for inviting me. It's been so nice and I felt very welcomed and it's just been really, really good talks and it's been a really, really great time. Yeah. And you two didn't even talk about musicals. Oh, no, that's true. we didn't. Yeah, I'm a I'm a musical guy. Oh, hell yeah. So we have a lot more that we could talk about hopefully sometime. I, I need to scream to someone about the twenty twelve London Stadium Arena tour of Jesus Christ Superstar with Ben Forster <laughs> and Tim Minchin. Oh. You know what? I was living in London when that happened and I didn't oh, really? get to see it. I love oh. to mention. Well, there's a pro shoot of it that's very much worth watching. It's it's a really, really good staging. It's so fun in the way that it manages to be a modernization of its time. But now, like, it's such a fantastic period piece because it's yes. so clearly modeled after Occupy Wall Street and just everything about its aesthetics oh, are cool. so early 2010s that it be it's very cool to go back and watch it. The original production is also an amazing oh, period piece of yes. the, you know, early 70s. Like what those hip 
hippie social movements were like. Yeah, the hippie Christians of the 70s. It's, it's yes. incredible. Yeah. Well, Sarah, if people want to check you out online and watch your videos, and also if there's anything else that you want to plug, like your podcast, please. Totally. You can just find my videos by going to YouTube and typing in Sarah Z or Sarah Z if you are American. Uh, I also do a D&D podcast with my friends. That's the one I just talked about before, which is about four students at a mysterious magical school and their hijinks and eventual traumas. That is called Trials and Trebuchets. That's available on pretty much every <laughs> podcaster platform. Those are my two big projects right now. Mostly YouTube for all of that. I also have a, a Patreon that you can check out. And that's pretty much what I've been up to. Great. Amazing. Well, folks at home, thanks for joining us for another wonderful episode of Late Night with Brian Wecht. And as closing words, I like your shoelaces. Thanks. Goodbye. I stole them from the president. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Late Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Knight, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Knight, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>